Welcome back, everybody. This is John Cranham. This is the Go To Dentist podcast. I am at Smith Mountain Lake, Virginia, uh, still kind of going back and forth between Chesapeake and Smith Mountain Lake. Uh, I'm happy to be back in the practice three days a week. And with me today, I have my partner, Pio Modi. Pio, where are you? How are you doing? I'm still up here in Canada, doing all right. Uh, you know, we're not working right now in Ontario anyways. Uh, uh, we are still waiting for the college to let us know when we can go back to work. So just getting, uh, trying to secure all the PPE like everybody else is, uh, acrylic shields to the front and, you know, in between spending time and with my kids and wife and helping with their homeschooling. So that's, yeah. that's what, same, same as before. Yeah, we uh, so we just had our third week, and we're still we're sort of limited. There's just myself, my associate, my front desk, and one hygienist, and so uh, just one doctor at a time right now. Actually, my assist associate assists me when uh, when I'm doing procedures, and then the hygienist assists her when she's doing procedures. So we're we're probably forty, forty, or fifty percent of what we normally would do. Good news is is that I you know there are patients that are doing stuff, you know, that were kind of backlogged and wanting to proceed with treatment. Of course, the people that are, we're delivering stuff are, are excited to get in. But next week we add a few more. We're going to start doing one hygienist and bringing back some assistance. And so hopefully by mid June we'll be, we'll be rolling. Uh, so yeah, I hope, uh, I hope the college makes, is there anybody in Canada right now? Are there any other provinces that are working? I believe BC is BC and Alberta is, but there's been a lot of blowback from the hygienists because BC has been incredibly lax with their guidelines, mm -hmm. which would be great as a dentist owner because you don't have to get all this PPE. But the the hygienists, for example, there was an article about how they don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it's interesting how you're staging everybody coming back. So hygiene, you're just bringing back slowly and no cavitrons and right. Yeah. And I think what we're going to end up doing is actually adding an assistant, um, and having one assistant that kind of is in charge of the vapor trail of the patients and also available for high vacuum suction when we are going to cavitron. So do some assisted hygiene when we're doing scaling, replaning and things like that. But yeah, really just working hard on right now, just making sure that, um, we have everything in place that, you know, we're going to take care of the patients and everybody and just do it the very best we can. But I am getting used to the gear that was a little bit uh, cumbersome at first, but that's, that's normalizing. And, uh, I think we're going to be okay. I think, I think it's going to come back and, and be fine. It's just going to be a little bit of getting used to. Well, let's do this. Let's get in today's podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about anterior guidance, myth or mandatory. And, and the reason we're using that topic, it is an article that I wrote uh, a number of years ago into, in response to another article that appeared maybe a year before that. And it was really an article that was designed to clarify uh, the Dawson Academy's stance on, on anterior guidance, because I do think sometimes we are misquoted and it's not completely understand, uh, understood what Dr. Dawson uh, did in dentistry with regards to anterior guidance. And I think it's one of his most important contributions is this concept of a customized anterior guidance for patients that need it. And so I know, Pio, you've, we've talked a lot about this over the years, and, and this was a topic that you really wanted to hit. So what I had suggested is maybe you create some questions 
and and we'll just talk about it. And I think it will give the listeners a a nice opportunity to maybe hear about some of the different philosophies that are out there and why we do what we do. And before we get there, I I, I do want to say that you know I have respect for everybody that's out there. I mean, we're all trying to manage force the best we can. Uh, but we do have very specific reasons that we do what we do, and and it's important for me that uh, that that people understand it from us, and not necessarily uh, from what other people are telling you that we do. So so let's kick it off. And uh, what what's the first question? What do you got, Pio? So I mean, this is I'm really excited about this topic, and you understand interior guidance better than anybody I know. And what but like you said, there's a lot of confusion out there. There's different schools of thought. So first thing is, you know, clarifying this as far as our stance versus what is out there from other academies in terms of how they approach and teach interior guidance, if they're even teaching it. Okay. So let's kind of go through it. And I'm not necessarily going to name names, uh, but let's talk about some of the different ideas that are out there. And the first I would say is there is a group that uh, does a lot of uh, occlusion-based treatment. Uh, they do believe in centric relation. They spend a lot of time in getting to centric relation with a splint first. So they might spend several months in splint therapy. And then when they approach the reconstructive phase, they usually are going to alter vertical dimension. Uh, and they're going to set up a very steep anterior guidance. They believe in uh, a very specific overbite overjet relationship of about four millimeters of an overbite, four millimeters of overjet, very sharp cuspids. A lot of their cases look alike, but they they believe that if you steepen the guidance, and if you're in centric relation and you steepen the guidance and disclude the back teeth, that the patients, if they chew a little more horizontal, will learn to chew more vertically. And they'll quote some studies that that look at jaw tracking that suggests that that shows that people will chew more vertically. The problem with that is that if you put something in the way of the lower incisors, like new teeth, and and use a jaw tracker to show how they're chewing, they're going to chew more vertically because the front teeth are in the way. But that does not necessarily mean that they're not running into them if you're just looking at jaw tracking data. So so our problem with only looking at anterior guidance is that it's possible that that guidance can be too steep for the patient. In other words, you could restrict the envelope of function. And so the first thing we like about that philosophy is we do believe in anterior guidance. We do believe that the back teeth have to be discluded. And we, we quote Williamson and Lundquist's research and, and Kirstein's research with the T-scan EMG. We know when back teeth rub, in other words, if we have no anterior guidance, that muscle activity goes up. And if the patient rubs on their back teeth or has the ability to do so, um, we're going to see some problems in the occlusion. And, of course, one of our absolute uh, mantras is when back teeth rub, that is often the enemy of a good occlusion. Back teeth rubbing increases muscle activity and it will often create instability with everything that's in the way of that increased muscle activity. That might cause sore muscles, it could cause problems with the joints, and it causes a lot of problems with the teeth with regards to wear, mobility, and particularly the possibility of migration or, or diastomas opening up. So, so 
Enter guidance is important. Uh, and so let's just say there's one school of thought that, that will just look at that. And again, one of my frustrations is some people say that that's what we do. And that is not what we do. We, we believe in anterior guidance, but there's another key component of this as well. The second school of thought is uh, that anterior guidance is not that important. And the only thing you have to worry about is to make sure that the front teeth are not in the way of and the envelope of function. Now, if we think about envelope of function, think about the path that lower incisor travels when we're chewing and speaking. Uh, if we think about anterior guidance, the path is sort of inside out. But when we're chewing and speaking, the path the lower incisor travels is often more elliptical and it's outside in. And there isn't any question that if the front teeth are in the are too steep, or if the cingulums are too thick, or if teeth have been moved too far lingually, maxillary incisors have been brought too far lingually, like maybe in a four bicuspid extraction case you could have a restricted envelope of function. Uh, so it is critical that, that the front, the maxillary anterior teeth are not in the way of that elliptical path of the lower incisors travel, all right? So, but again, this particular school of thought basically says, don't worry about anterior guidance, just make sure that those lower incisors don't slam into the back of the upper incisors. The only thing they're focused in on is envelope of function. My concern with that is, while I totally agree that envelope of function is important, you can't not have back teeth excluding. So if you just move those front teeth out of the way or maybe create a situation where the lower incisors don't even touch, if you start grinding or moving in any direction, the back teeth are going to rub. When back teeth grow, grow, uh, rub, we know from the EMG studies that muscle activity increases. So our problem with that particular philosophy is awesome that you are, you're creating harmony with the envelope of function, but we don't agree with the fact that you can't ignore anterior guidance. So it brings us to our philosophy, all right? And with our philosophy, we're going to combine the two. Uh, uh, we, we believe in the rule from, from all these years ago is anterior guidance in harmony with the envelope of function, which means... We still want the front teeth protecting the back teeth. If you move in an inside-out movement in protrusive or left or right, we want the canines and incisors carrying the load so that the back teeth exclude. If that happens, we know that we can get as much as an 80% reduction in muscle activity in the masters and the temporalis muscles, uh, and I'm assuming the medial pterygoids as well. Harder to measure those um, because they're inside the mouth. But the second part of that is as we start chewing and speaking, we have to enough, have enough concavity on the maxillary incisors and canines so that when the lower jaw and lower incisors move inside or, or outside in, that they don't bump into those maxillary anterior teeth. And in that way, it is possible for us to have both anterior guidance where we disclude the back teeth and enough concavity so that we are in harmony with the envelope of function. Uh, it's really important to know that, that, that this was one of the biggest departures Dr. Dawson did in the 70s. Uh, there were certainly people that were teaching anterior guidance as, as, as a um, 
a concept of disclusion of the back teeth. But one of the things that Pete was recognizing was that there were times that he was still seeing problems. In other words, he made the guidance too steep. He discluded the back teeth, but he was still seeing problems. He was seeing fremitus on the anterior teeth. He was seeing uh, spaces opening up. Um, and it made him question this whole concept. And, uh, and one day he was working on a patient and sort of talking to them and he was thinking about how the, the, the jaw was moving outside in. And so what he did was worked out the anterior guidance with the patient laying back and then sat the patient up and just let them bite. And what we now know is checking for long centric, which is that freedom from centric relation. It, it allows us to measure that path. So it's critical that we understand that, um, you know, this is a, a dentist in his thirties that was um, questioning, you know, LD Panky and, and, and some very, very smart people that were out there speaking about just strictly uh, an anterior guidance worked out on an articulator. And he said, look, we can work out an anterior guidance on an articulator, but then we have to sit the patient up and work with long centric to customize for the patient's specific envelope of function. Uh, again, the rule is anterior guidance in harmony with the envelope of function. It's, it's incredible that, uh, you know, we always think of, and everybody thinks of Pete as, you know, CR. occlusion guy. And people don't realize how much of a pioneer he was with cosmetic dentistry. Yeah. And, and you know, how to set up the, the inside, interiors properly, the proper contours and everything that you're discussing with interior guidance and in harmony with them level function. Uh, did you want to discuss briefly, John, about uh, uh, Pete, and specifically, you know, that, that, that functional matrix, those seven, those seven planes he looks at, you know, you talk about lawn centric, which often confuses people, but those specific uh, contours that Pete discussed when just looking at a, at an interior tooth. Yeah, I can. And, and again, you know, as we, as we go around a tooth, one of the things that, that he teaches us is that every contour of a maxillary anterior tooth is for a reason. And, one of the things that we teach is we may make some very good guesstimates about where the contours are in wax, but once we get the provisionals in, we go through a very specific order where we start with getting our centric stop, then we move to the facial contour and work out the cervical half of that facial contour, then we work out the incisal half of that facial contour, and, and that that's a critical contour because that positions the incisal edge horizontally. And, and again, that's, that is so critical from the standpoint of not only comfort, but also phonetics, being able to speak properly and making the tooth look properly. The fourth thing is we dial in the vertical position of the incisal edge for the smile line. And again, for the F and B sounds for phonetics. And then the fifth thing we're going to work out is the cingulum and that, or I'm sorry, the, the lingual contour um, in between the cingulum and the incisal edge. That lingual contour is what we're talking about here. That contour has to be steep enough to disclude the back teeth, but still concave enough to be in harmony envelope of function. And again, it's hard to talk about this in a podcast, but you know, working out the, the protrusive and lateral guidance when the patient's laying back, and then having the patient sit up 
and working out how much horizontal freedom we need for the outside in movement of the jaw. That's what long centric's about. But that little, that little contour from your centric stop to incisal edge has to be worked out in the mouth in provisionals. And then of course the sixth thing we work out is the uh, cingulum. And that's just, again, there's certain sounds that we make uh, the TDS sounds. If that cingulum is a little too, too thick, then we can have some problems. So, you know, today we're pretty good at not getting those cingulums too bulky, but that's it. I mean, that's the, the process we go through over and over again. So important. And, and it was interesting, you mentioned one of the academies about how they were very specific about, you know, where they want the overbite and overjet in terms of millimeters. But like we discussed, you know, there are patients who do not have that. They have deep overbites and, and they're functioning well. So follow up to that is, is how do you know when a patient when they do have anterior guidance, whether it's working and specifically, you know, what are the signs of instability that can show that it's not working well? Yeah, that's such a good point because again, I, I think a lot of times, you know, I see dentists uh, look at patients and, and you made the, the example of the deep overbite patient. And there isn't any question people with deeper bites, if they have a deep bite and they function horizontally, you know, they're going to run into their front teeth and, and we can get problems with that. But there are a lot of deep bite patients who are amazingly stable. You know, if they have a deep bite and they don't have a real horizontal elliptical path with their envelope of function, in other words, if they, Pete called them chop choppers, if they, if they chew completely vertically, they don't run into their teeth um, and they have very little horizontal movement to their, to their jaw function. Those patients, it's a mistake to change them because you will look in their mouth and the way you'll know they're stable is there's no wear on the teeth whatsoever. The teeth are not drifting. They're stable. They're staying in position and there's no mobility. There's no more sole muscles. They often don't have joint problems. And even though they may not look perfectly like the textbook, then, you know, then the, the, uh, but the lack of signs of instability stability tell us that this is low functional risk. This person does not have occlusal disease and you can do the dentistry you need to do right there. Um, now, if you do have a deeper bite situation and you do see signs of instability, that's the time to change the deep overbite. And so we might be intruding teeth or changing vertical or any number of ways that we teach, but we're going to be figuring out how to still have anterior guidance but shallow the guidance so that it's in harmony with the envelope of function. That's going to be our treatment objective um, with that for sure. The With anterior guidance, you, there are cases like we discussed where it's not always feasible. And so when you're with your treatment plans, I mean, your treatment plans are ex extraordinary, exceptional. And, and when you're planning these cases, when do you veer from anterior guidance? When do you decide that you cannot incorporate it for a patient? Like if you can give an example. Yeah. So I think that there's, let's say you've got a, a, probably the best example is when patients scaldly show up where they don't have contact on their front teeth. And so if you lack contact on your front teeth and the classic example might be an open bite case, um, big tongue thrust or somebody that is just scaldly class two, a very small mandible, and the, the canines and lower incisors are back, 
uh, away from the, the cingulums of the upper, well, that patient, when they move, they're going to be rubbing on back teeth. They lack anterior guidance. And in our philosophy, really the only way that you're going to be able to fix that is by changing, it's a skeletal problem, is by changing the skeleton, which would be more, uh, lead us more to a situation that is going to involve orthognathic surgery, ortho and orthognathic surgery. Usually uh, bringing the mandible forward, you know, surgically, a BSSO, uh, or sometimes even two-jaw surgery. Well, there are patients that aren't going to do that. I mean, I have them. And, and sometimes the best we can do for them is maybe equilibrate them so we get as many teeth touching as we possibly can and centric. But in that indication, we may have to use a group function where if you can get the canines to touch, awesome. We still may be able to get canine guidance. Um, in protrusion, you might have the distal of the canine or the mesial of the first bite excluding off the distal of the canine. Uh, but if it's a little more involved than that, then you, you, may, you may start working with a group function where on the working side, you're going to have premolars carrying the load. And what we always say is if that's your, if that's your compromise, then we're always going to be um, fulfilling the requirements, uh, five requirements of the good occlusion or five requirements of occlusal stability in a splint at night. So we live with the group function and then, uh, then you know, we, we still going to give them an ideal occlusion in an orthotic at nighttime. Now, the other time that we may consider it is maybe you're, you're, you would like to have the canine guidance, but you look structurally at the canine, and maybe the canine has endo and like a humongous post in it, and maybe the feral effect is not that good, and you're just worried that having the load on that canine is problematic. And so that's a situation that there again, you may decide to carry the load with the premolars. So you might have canine first by second by group function situation. I still think the same rule applies if you've got group function occlusion and it's a higher functional risk case, then I'm definitely going to put the patient in an appliance at night, a maxillary appliance and work out my guidance to protect that weak canine. Uh, and I've got, I've got a number of patients over the years that I've done that, that it's worked out pretty well on. Um, and I've got some patients where I tried to trust the weak canine and I, and I paid a price for that too. And so, you know, I, I think you have to really look structurally at teeth to determine, you know, what they're going to be able to carry. And, uh, canines are, are great teeth. They're big teeth, they have big roots, but you know, they get a lot of horizontal force on them. Just to follow up that, you you were saying uh, as far as establishing group function, just so uh, listeners understand, you're still always removing balancing interferences. Yeah. Yeah, you really, really would – you, there's really never a time that we want the the balancing side contacting. And, and similarly, in a protrusive stroke, we want the back teeth excluding in a protrusive stroke. Again, sometimes with those class twos, you may have to have the premolar – mesial to premolars engaging with the distal of the canine for a split second until the incisors can connect, right? And as soon as the incisors connect, then they can take over. But, um, but yeah, generally speaking, we're talking about working side only contact in a group function. 
I love, I love this concept too, because as long as you understand the foundational concepts, you're talking about customizing the occlusion for, you know, different cases, which is so important. Knowing the foundational concepts and then being able to improvise or customize. And one of those cases where obviously you have to customize anterior guidance is with your implant cases. And you do a lot of implant cases. You teach a lot about implants. So if you can, John, discuss, you know, how you approach with your, your implant cases. Yeah. So I think that the, the biggest thing to just remember, and we probably should talk a little bit that when implants get into the mix, it does change things because implants are different than teeth. We're not going to have the same neuromuscular benefit um, of muscle activity being shut off when implants are in there. And so what I would say is that when, let's just talk about a couple different, maybe uh, things that go on. So let's talk about the scenario where maybe you have an implant in a single central position, right? So you've done everything else uh, normally. Um, and if the central is, if there's an implant in the central situ position, one of the things that we know is that when we close and, and close our, our, our mouth and the teeth all come into contact, because teeth have ligaments, they move a teeny tiny bit. And so when we started using the T-scan technology and, and measuring occlusal timing, one of the things we learned is, is if you have implants and teeth all hitting simultaneously at the same time and where the, the marks on the teeth all look the same, that when you check with the T-scan, because the teeth move a little bit, we're actually overloading that implant. And so what I would tell you is that if, a, if you got an implant in a central position, you know, do your occlusal markings, but I would tell you that if you're not using something like a T-scan, just make sure that the, the mark on the paper, and let's say you're using something like AccuFilm that's got like eight micron paper, you want the contact to be there, but very, very light, okay? And if it's very, very light, then what's happening is the teeth move, the contact on the implant is just coming in a couple hundredths of a second later. And that's what we want. When we, when we look at the T-scan, we find that, that that tends to be a nice balanced load when we do that. Now, in your protrusive stroke, in that scenario, um, what I would say is just skip over that implant completely. You can, have your, you can have your guidance off of the central and maybe off of the laterals. Okay, so maybe those three teeth carry the load. But generally speaking, we really want to try to minimize the load, the lateral load on dental implants. Uh, they just do not do as well. So we start to get to a situation of lateral movement. And when canines get involved, uh, I start to really think about things that I learned from Carl Misch. And, and P.O. Noel, I know you learned from Carl along the way. Uh, and he had the, the rule of the three S's, which was shared, shallow, and splinted. So we're going to just talk about a single canine for a second. So we're obviously not going to be splinting an implant to teeth, but let's just think about this concept of shared and shallow. Now, one of the most important things to remember when we have teeth involved is that when we go into a disclusive movement and we're, we're only on the canine and back teeth disclude, uh, we have this wonderful ability to shut off muscle. And, and I do think it is be, not so much because the canine tooth is contacting, 
it's because of the lack of the contact on posterior teeth. So theoretically, if you did canine guidance off of an implant, you'd still probably shut off the muscles. But what we're concerned about is too much horizontal force on an implant may be not good over time. Could cause screws to come loose. It could cause all sorts of things. So, so with that, what we're thinking about is how can we share that load a little bit? And so, this is a time that I'm going to use canine first by second by create a, a group function type of occlusion. And maybe the most important thing is we get the guidance as shallow as possible. In other words, you do not want to be doing a deep bite type case in this scenario. So, you know, if we're starting with a deep bite and they're missing a canine and we're putting in an implant, I'm almost always doing some ortho first to show I can keep up, uh, decrease the overbite relationship and shallow that guidance nicely. Uh, and, and if we do that, it, it tends to, to work out really well. Similar speak, speaking, if we now, let's say, go to multiple implants, Let's do like an all on four, all on five. Now we can really apply the three S's. You know, we're gonna we're gonna splint everything together. Uh, we're gonna create a nice equal contacts all the way around in centric relation, and then we're gonna share it. Uh, we're gonna do that sh that shared where we're gonna create that group function. So on that working side, again, excluding the balancing side completely, but definitely guidance off the canine first by second by and just trying to make that as shallow as we possibly can. That just works beautifully. It works beautifully with, you know, protos, zirconia type cases, works good with the, uh, the hybrid type situations. The only one other one to just kind of be aware of is remember that if you're ever doing a, uh, a prosthesis where you're opposing a denture, we're always going to be throwing away the three S's and we do a denture occlusion. And so let's take the example of a lower all on four, or maybe even just a lower denture that's supported by locators um, against an upper denture. You'd never want contact on those uh, on the, from canine to canine up front. We use a lingualized occlusion, which means we use a, a 33 degree denture tooth up top and a 20 degree denture tooth on the bottom. And the upper lingual cusps of the, of the denture tooth basically lands on a flat surface, a central fossa or marginal ridge of the lower. And there's no contact in the, in the anterior. The reason is, is if, if you built an implant a, a den, a prosthesis on the bottom and it opposes a denture and you have contact uh, in the anterior, you're gonna destroy the premaxilla. So, you know, that'll just, that'll just melt away. So we definitely go more to a denture type occlusion uh, in that, in that in environment. Are there ever any issues just to follow up with that, John, with, with the, those denture cases, like an all in front of the bottom, denture on the top, when you're taking anteriors out of contact, any issues with chewing or, you know, or just general function for the patient. Nah, it really isn't. And again, it doesn't have to be miles out of occlusion, right? I mean, they can just be barely apart. And so they can still in size, they can still move their jaw forward in, in size if they need to. But I think you'll agree that if it's an upper denture, most of the time, 
um, you know, people chew sort of vertically. Uh, I do have a patient though that uh, sent me a video one time of him chewing corn on the cob with his upper denture against my lower, and it shocked me. But he he told me, I'm like, I don't know how you're doing that. And he goes, I figured out what I do. I I I move my tongue up, and he pushes his tongue against the back of the denture when he bites into the corn. So, <laughs> so he's you know, he's a talented dude, but but he's eating corn on the cob with that thing. Not a lot of people can adapt like that, you know? Yeah. So I think most of the time people are chewing up and up straight up and down. But, but again, when it's just important to remember that anterior guidance and things we're talking about is not happen when we're dealing with a denture type occlusion. That's so important. Again, it's anterior guidance always when, when we can, but, the way you've been talking about how to customize it is so so important for people to know. Now, it, the last thing we're going to talk about is, you know, people with a full dentition and, you know, you establish anterior guidance, but sometimes people are outside of that bell curve. Uh, you establish it, but, you know, they're the, they're the for example, uh, like we discussed, those parafunctional bruxers who are going to brux no matter what exclusive scheme you establish. So for those patients, just discuss how you approach those cases. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I do think that when we think about our patients, uh, I was listening to somebody who was speaking at the equilibration meeting this year uh, that was talking about that there may be some research that says that if you create an anterior guidance and you decrease the muscle activity, that it's possible the muscle activity could return. Uh, in other words, they may start to continue to be able to pull muscle fibers back into play, even with an anterior guidance. And so I thought that was an interesting, but I do think that w the way we have to look at that is that may be possible, but it's, we're so successful doing, creating occlusions the way we're recommending that that, if it happens, is going to be by far the exception rather than the rule. And so let's say that it happens. Let's say there are patients, and, and I do think that there can be patients that brux and grind um, because of neurologic reasons, because of, of medis, medical medicine, um, sleep apnea. I mean, we do have all these, these things that we're learning now that it's not just a, occlusion. So, but here's the great news is that if you have somebody that's out way on the edge of the bell curve and, and is functioning outside of normal, there's going to be all sorts of red flags when you're looking at this case. This, this is the patient that is just going to be a train wreck. And what I would tell you is that these are, if, if it's a train wreck from occlusal wear or just from a, uh, just a, a, a functional disaster that you're, you're treatment planning and waxing, I already know that I'm going to be building a lot of time and temporaries on this patient. Okay. So what I would tell you is do not rush to try to get porcelain in this patient's mouth because what you're going to want to do is make the best occlusal design that you can do. And we talk about this, right? When we're, we're looking at our photos and models, we, we have a very specific workflow at the academy where we visualize and wax our lower incisal edges, then we do our upper incisal edges, then we do our vertical, then we do our centric stops, our guidance and posterior disclusion. That's how we set it up every time. Yeah. But, you know, as Glenn DuPont has said that that is going to be our very best guess. And we don't know if that's how that's going to work till we get it in the mouth. 
And so these big wear cases, I'm going to spend more time. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about a year, but you know, weeks to a couple of months, uh, really seeing this patient, seeing how they're doing, making sure the temps aren't wearing out. And if I see somebody who's starting with, with good guidance, starting to really tear up their temps, uh, then that's one that I'm going to start thinking about what can I do to help manage this force? Do I need to shallow the guidance even more? Do I need to close the bite? Do I need to open the bite? And there's a patient right now that we, that I'm working through with this probably has the most interesting wear pattern I've seen because she moves just mainly to the left. And when you look at her, she's got a horrific, uh, crown or had a horrific crown and post in uh the the upper left three or, or number 11 and the premolars behind it were both gone and so she had implants there so she's already destroyed everything kind of going in that direction so we ended up opening her bite i did bonding bonded all the edges on the bottom it's really significant bonding uh and then got her into a provisional and had the guidance shallowed out had canine guidance going on and within a, the 10 days that I saw her, it looked like the bonding on the bottom left had been on a belt sander. I mean, she's just destroying it. And so, so now we're tweaking and we're shallowing. And, and, and again, because of that weak canine, right, I'm not really loving having the guidance off of that. And there's two implants behind it. You know, I've employed a extremely shallow guidance on that side. Uh, and, and again, we're now in permanence up top. I'm still in the bonding on the bottom and I'm not going to do porcelain down there until I really feel like that the bonding is, is doing, is doing okay. Now I will tell you that if you're opposing porcelain to bonding, there's going to be a little bit of a excessive wear on the bonding anyway, right? You would expect that. But if it's, if it's going really, really fast, then we know we've got a little bit more more stuff to work out and so thankfully we've we've got a guidance now that's almost horizontal you know and if the guidance is horizontal the aesthetics aren't going to be maybe exactly what she wants looks way better than what she had but you start shallowing things out and what do you lose you lose some size edges and cuspal morphology and things just start looking a little flatter uh, these people are of course always going to be in a night guard but these are the things that you have to figure out and I think that's when too the more you do this you start realizing you can't just look at a case like this and um, you know charge your standard per unit price I mean you you're gonna have to build in some time to work things out and you have to be able to explain to the patient that that this is not a usual and customary situation they have very serious functional disease and we can make some good guesstimates with wax, but we're going to be working this without out in the temporary, and it might take us a couple months. And so because of that, the fee is going to be, you know, 20% more, whatever you're going to. And, and again, a lot of times these patients understand that because they're also the same patients that have had a lot of dentistry that hasn't worked out, you know, in the past. And so uh, I just think the more we can explain up front, about where you're going to go, then everybody's a little more patient and understands that there may be some bumps along the road. It's it's interesting because I, you know, we've been off, but I've been seeing 
patients on emergencies. And I just had a consult with a patient exactly like that. And, you know, I learned this from you to, to build in your fees even beyond, uh, you know, what you would for a normal case. And I'm going to do exactly what you're saying is, you know, build it out in temporaries first, uh, you know, and, and work it out before, you know, before we even consider going to porcelain. This is a guy in town, great guy, and he has destroyed his teeth. He's in his 60s, chiropractor, like really, you know, athletic guy and just square jaw and just destroyed his yeah. teeth. So a lot of hesitation getting to this case, but I'm also very excited because I know because of the way we approach cases, you know, I can handle it as well or better than anybody in this area. So, but exactly building the fees. One of the things I've always thought was interesting and I, you know, you and I both like everybody in the Academy love Pete. And one of the things that I was always afraid with Pete was the concept of night guards. Cause I mean, you know, you have way more stories than me, but I know Pete wasn't a big, uh, big on the night guards because he always felt and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you establish the proper occlusal scheme, equilibrate well, that my understanding was he didn't really feel there was a need for it. And, and, but then, you know, when you became director and Glenn and everybody, you know, that's shifted a little bit. So with these parafunctional cases, I mean, with the night guard, maybe if you can just, just go over that to end this as far as, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it is. I, I do think that, I think what drove a lot of that is that one of the things that Pete was nervous about was he wanted to be clear that 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 a occlusal splint is not the solution. <laughs> so right, so he's right. he feels like that so much occlusal training um just led people to, oh, they had wear, they had this, they had that, so we're making appliance and then you're done. And you know, his point was is that a Occlusal splints primarily in the Dawson Academy are used for diagnostic purposes to create an occlusion where if we can get rid of the problem, which is often pain, let's face it, that's where we're using them mostly for TMJ patients and things, muscle pain. But if we put something between their teeth and the pain goes away, we ought to be able to have the same occlusion with their teeth and have similar results. Okay. And so, so I do think that that we look at we look at splints and occlusal therapy or, or occlusal orthotics primarily for diagnosis and for the treatment of pain. Now, having said all that, if I have a patient that is high functional risk, right? I mean, if they've got tremendous amount of wear and tear, um, we're using materials today that are often more breakable than things Pete did. Pete did a lot of gold, right? I mean, a lot of the right. back teeth were gold. Uh, he was doing porcelain fused to metal with often metal linguals in the interior. So all of the occluding surfaces was, were metal. So he was going to see less potential chippage and fracture. Uh, and so I do think there's nothing wrong with, particularly when we're learning this, do I do fewer night guards now than I did 30 years ago when I was starting with Pete? Well, absolutely, because I can tell when I've got control of the situation and, and I feel like the patient doesn't need it. But if I'm ever in question, you know, if I've got one of these patients at the end of the bell curve, like the patient I just discussed, I'm absolutely going to finish that patient with an orthotic. And the other thing that I like about it is if they're we wearing a night guard or, you know, orthotic type appliance at night, uh, I'll have them bring it in hygiene and I'll have that thing equilibrated perfectly. And if there's marks all up, there's tracks all over that thing. We've seen people like that, right? That, that just 
are just still just milling on that thing. There's something else going on with this patient. And what I will tell you is uh, what I found at least that the vast majority of patients that do that to appliances, after, even with a perfected occlusion, they have sleep stuff going on. You know, so so a lot of this now has been really helped with our understanding of 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 uh, sleep disordered breathing and how that can continue bruxing. But but there are still other things. I've got a uh, a mentally retarded, mentally handicapped patient that is a great big gentleman that in his forties that we've done a bunch of dentistry on, and um, and he's on a lot of meds that create tardive dyskinesia, and so he's in an appliance at night because those meds and I've talked to his neurologist. I mean, one of the side effects is, is significant bruxing and I've got to remake his appliance every year. He goes through it every year. And so, yeah. you know, that's just, so you, you, you've got to peel back the onion. You have to understand it. But what concerns me, and this is the way I think a good place to end is that people will hear stories about this, this parafunction and think because there's parafunction that there's no way for us to control forces. And that's just not true. The vast, vast majority of patients, when we fulfill the five requirements of occlusal stability, you'll have amazing control of the occlusion and manage force. Um, but, you know, examine the crime scene of your patient's mouth a little bit and just start thinking about it. If there's stuff that appears to be beyond normal you may have somebody that's outside uh, on the edges of the bell curve there that that you need to be thinking about these other things but what i can promise is if you uh are a student of ours and and you learn about anterior guidance and how we can create posterior disclusion and you learn the intricacies of of making your anterior guidance of high the envelope of function uh it's life-changing uh in terms of the kind of dentistry that you can do and and make beautiful dentistry so comfortable for your patients and uh anyway that's that's what we hang our hat on isn't it well i can vouch for that 100 percent. it is life-changing when you do apply these principles and everything you discussed today which is so important with interior guidance I and mean, we see it at the academy i mean it's changed my career and you know the study club challenge where people present cases case after case when they follow the the principles those are always the cases that work out the best and they're mm -hmm. the cases actually that win because they followed all the principles that you teach and and they knock it out of the park every time yeah and that's the thing i mean i i think I, we get asked over and over you know what is it that we do and i i think what we do maybe better than anybody is we teach a very specific protocol and and we're not just kind of teaching you or showing you a case or doing this or that or 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 just focus on aesthetics we're teaching a very specific protocol of how to set up a dentition that's going to look beautiful and be able to manage force and so but you can't really cut corners you got to get the data whether it's digital or analog you got to figure it out you got to look at your patients but these principles that we're talking about here second to center correlation this these concepts of anterior guidance and envelope of function um it's the whole ball of wax you get center correlation right you get anterior guidance and envelope of function right and back teeth just kind of are in between aren't they they just sort of touch and get out of the way and so i think that will we'll, uh probably be a good place for us to wind up any other comments or anything else you want to say from there 
No, I think uh, this was fantastic. You know, you've nailed interior guidance on how we teach it. For And for those who aren't awesome people, I, I just think it would be good if you can just end on what, which is so important, is our five requirements for occlusal stability. If you can just really quick over that, and, and then we can end this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so our five requirements, the first thing is that we want to have equal intensity contacts. So if we can, again, for the patients that we're trying to, you know, control force the best we can. Imagine that if the, if the condyles are seated in centric and the jaw closes, we have all the teeth, all the lower teeth hitting the upper teeth simultaneously. So equal intensity contacts and centric. The second requirement is we want to have an anterior guidance in harmony with the envelope of function, which is we spent the whole podcast talking about. But again, anterior teeth that are steep enough to disclude the back teeth when we go into any movement. But enough concavity so when the lower jaw is traveling outside in that the lower incisors don't bump. So uh, again, enough concavity for harmony with the envelope of function. Third, we wanna have disclusion and protrusion, no back teeth rubbing and protrusion. Uh, on the balancing side, number four, we don't wanna have any rubbing on the balancing side. And uh, number five, we're gonna have non-interfering posterior teeth uh, on the working side. And so what that means is most of the time that canine is going to disclude the working side, but in that rare occurrence where you can't get canine guidance, or maybe you have an implant there or a weak canine, then we would utilize a group function. So I think if you can understand that, that is in a nutshell what we do. Fantastic. John, this is great. Uh, so, so wild with this information. I hope a lot of people listen to this podcast these occlusal concepts and these concepts for setting up anterior teeth. And with that, we'll close. I want to thank everybody for listening to the go to dentist podcast and we look forward to doing another one again. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks PO. See everybody. Take care.